My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Wilderness Church, and it's really good to see all of you beautiful folks uh, out here this morning. Glad you made the choice uh, to, to be a part of this. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, and this is our weekend event. Well, this isn't the main unit of Christianity, but this is a, a weekend event where God shows up and we hear, hear the word, and so it's a good thing. Now, we're going to continue in the series that we're in um, uh, this moving beyond belief, life beyond belief, how to get into kingdom realities, how to get out of our, how to get out of our stuckness in believism. And uh, the title of this morning's message is, is what kind of leadership? What kind of leadership is kingdom leadership is what we're really asking here. Um, and I could have entitled this uh, how to, or understanding and responding to abusive leadership. Because as we're going to see here, the passage of Scripture that we're dealing with is really about abusive relationships, about abusive leadership, non-kingdom uh, leadership. You'll recall from last week that Jesus was invited uh, to uh, a Pharisee's house for dinner, and he has his Pharisee friends there. And Jesus begins this delightful supper discussion by accusing the Pharisees of hypocrisy. And saying, why are you so interested on external behavior, but your heart is really far, far from God? Why do you care about how you wash the cup and how you wash the plate and how you wash your hands? And yet the issues of the heart seem to be neglected by you. Because if your heart was right with God, you'd be generous towards the poor, he said. And we, t- we covered that last week. Now we're going to pick up this delightful supper discussion, uh, starting with verse 42. But before we do that, I want to pray. Lord, we ask that you would use this word to build your kingdom in our heart and our mind. I pray for every person in this auditorium, every person who's listening by podcast, all of our podrishners, and open our, all of our eyes and our hearts and our ears and our spirits to receive your word. And use it to give us wisdom about leadership. Use, a, use this to rally us around leadership. Use this to build your kingdom. In your name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. If you're new to Woodland Hills, uh, I need to tell you that our, the way we go about preaching here is we just go through the Bible. We've, we're going through the book of Luke here, verse by verse. And um, this is a, we're going to cover now 12 verses, which is like a marathon for Woodland Hills. And we're going to make a sprint out of this. So this is going to be a very dense, packed message. It's, it's informationally intensive. Uh, it's got no entertainment value whatsoever, but it's got a lot of learning in it, so you might want to be taking notes. I'm just going to pick apart each of these verses that we're dealing with here, and then at the end, I'll, I'll, I'll give three quick teachings that kind of bring the whole thing together. But most of it's just going to be exegesis. What are these verses saying to us? And what we'll see is that there's six woes that Jesus pronounces on the leadership of his day which gives us six principles or six truths about how to recognize abusive leadership and move away from it. So starting with verse 42. Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Okay, four points on that single verse. Number one, the woe that Jesus pronounces here, it is a a declaration of impending judgment. He's saying it's going to be bad for you. God is going to judge you for the things that I'm calling out from you right now. 
Now, this isn't necessarily a pronouncement about eternal judgment. He's not saying they're going to go to hell necessarily. We today tend to, especially Protestants, we tend to read all the judgments of the Bible as being about hell, when in fact, most of the judgments in the Bible are not about hell. There's other kinds of judgments. Many scholars argue that the judgment that Jesus is referring to in this passage is a historical judgment. More specifically, Jesus is, is referring to, they argue, a judgment, judgment that's going to come on Israel in 70 AD when God's going to allow the Romans to overtake the, the Israelites uh, and, and, and demolish their temple and then uh, uh, kick all the Jews out of Jerusalem, bringing an end to the whole temple Judaism system. Uh, and so they argue that that's the woe that Jesus is talking about. Others argue that, that no, the woe does refer to a judgment after death. But even in those cases, it may not refer to an eternal judgment. Because Jesus and Paul and the Apostle Peter all refer to a judgment after death, what's called a post-mortem judgment, that is restorative and redemptive rather than condemning. And so that may be the woe that Jesus is, is referring to, but it doesn't necessarily have to do with hell. Another thing about the woe that we need to know is this. Jesus isn't giving here an ironclad prophecy of inevitable doom. Jesus is rather giving a warning, hoping that they'll change. In fact, this is the case for most biblical prophecy. The ancient Greeks, in contrast to the Old Testament prophets, they would consult oracles and they had all sorts of divination and they dabbled in the occult and they had an idea of prophecy as, as declaring what is inevitable. They were fatalistic. This is what's going to happen no matter what. But the, the, the Jews had a different view of prophecy. On the whole, when God announces that something's going to happen, it's because he wants people to change their behavior so it won't happen. See what I'm saying? And so Jesus isn't here saying that you guys are doomed. He's calling on them to repent. Because if they don't repent, then these woes that Jesus is applying right now are going to uh, apply to them. Okay, a second point out of this verse is this. Jesus is a prophet, and in the context of the Old Testament covenant, the Hebraic covenant, a prophet is supposed to hold religious leaders accountable. That's, that, that's one of their jobs. So Jesus is here holding religious leaders accountable. And there's a social context in which that makes sense. He's not being rude here. This is what a prophet is supposed to do. And I say that to say this. We can't extrapolate from these verses general principles about how we're supposed to behave when we're invited over to a stranger's house. All right? Uh, if you go to a stranger's house and the first thing you start talking about is their hypocrisy, that is way out of line, that is judgmental, that is rude, and love is never rude. But see, this is not like being invited to a stranger's house. This is more like the Pope holding priests accountable, all right? Uh, there's a, a covenantal context in which that makes sense. Or some superintendent of a denomination holding the pastors accountable. They're supposed to do that, and everyone understands that. And so what Jesus is doing here is very appropriate given the cultural framework in which it's uh, occurring. A third point is this. Jesus mentions the tenth. You give a tenth of all your garden herbs in, in tithing. Now, the tenth was the tithe, which was part of the Old Testament taxation system. One-third of all Jewish taxes, which came to 30% of their income, went to support the temple and the Levitical priesthood. That's all part of the Old Testament way of doing things. And these folks are under that covenant still. It really doesn't come to an end until 70 AD. Um, but, uh, here Jesus is saying, in that context, it's good that you care about 
tithing so much. You, you want to make sure that you tithe even your garden herbs, everything. A tenth of everything goes to God. That's okay. What he's mad about is that they're so concerned about that, but they neglect the more important matters of justice towards others and a love towards God. And so that's what he's confronting, which leads to my fourth point. All, this whole passage is about confronting abusive leadership. And I'm going to draw out of Jesus' six woes that he pronounces on these leaders, I'm going to draw out six truths about abusive leaderships. And so truth number one is that abusive leaders tend to focus on externals and a major in the minors. This is what the Pharisees were doing, and it's a, it's, a, it's a principle that applies to many abusive leaders. They focus on the do's and don'ts of behavior, and they can't see the forest through the trees. By contrast, Jesus focused on the heart more than behavior, and he brought a sense of perspective and balance to things. He had a sense of prioritizing things. For example, he says this, if you love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, you're going to fulfill the whole law. He, he could tell the bullseye and distinguish the bullseye from the parameter. Whereas with the Pharisees, they couldn't do that. It was like everything was equally in, important. So the sign of healthy Christian leadership, as opposed to abusive leadership, is that they major in the majors, they minor in the minors, and they focus on the heart rather than trying to control people's behavior. Then Jesus moves on. Second verse here. Woe to you, Pharisees! Because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. You just love the fact that people know that you are a leader, a Pharisee. You're the senior pastor. And, and you love getting those privileged positions when you go to church and things of that sort. Truth number two, then, is this. Abusive leaders tend to place inordinate stress on their position and authority and tend to demand rather than earn respect and demand compliance. See, by contrast, Jesus says do the opposite, as we preached a number of weeks ago. Jesus says, don't go sitting in this, the privileged seats, the seats of honor. Rather, in the kingdom of God, it's better to serve than it is to be served. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. He turns the whole thing upside down. And he tells his, his, his followers, he says, don't be calling anybody father in a religious sense. And don't be calling anybody rabbi in a religious sense. And what he's saying there is this. I don't want anyone being put up on a pedestal in the kingdom of God. Respect is one thing, fine, but, but there are to be no heroes uh, in the kingdom of God where, where they're, they're honored and worshipped. The only one to be worshipped is God. And so no pedestals. And he tells the leaders to, to take measures to make sure that other people don't put you up on a pedestal. So a sign of healthy Christian Christ-like leadership as opposed to abusive leadership is that you don't put yourself up on a pedestal, you don't make people put you up on a pedestal, but rather you go the opposite direction and, and, and you show forth humility and, and, and teach people uh, uh, about humility. Like I do, for example. It's one of my great points, don't you think? <laughs> Moving along. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. It's an interesting concept. In the first century, uh, among ancient Jews, if you walked on someone's grave, even though you did it accidentally, you were considered unclean for a week, ceremonially unclean. And so what Jesus is saying here is really this. Uh, Pharisees, you have death on the inside. You've you got a corpse on the inside. And even though you claim to be making people clean, you're really making them unclean. 
You're really defiling them, and they don't even know it. They don't even know it. And so truth number three of abusive leadership is this. Abusive leaders tend to wound people and make them sicker, all the while trying to convince them that they're making them healthier. They wound people and make them sicker. By contrast, Jesus, he, he healed people. He brought life. He made people whole. He made people clean. And so a key to healthy Christ-like leadership is this. You don't pollute people and you don't make them sicker. Rather, you help them become clean. You help them to become whole. You help them to become free. It's a sign of healthy Christ-like leadership. Then Luke continues the narrative. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. The expert in the law is sometimes translated as scribe. And the scribe were the ones who interpreted the Bible for the Pharisees. The Pharisees applied what the scribes told them to apply. So these are the real culprits here. So this scribe, being overly bright for sure, says, hmm, Jesus, when you're insulting the Pharisees here, you're confronting them, you're, you're insulting us too. And Jesus responds by saying, you think? <laughs> so Jesus changes his audience. Now that you step forward, look at you experts in the law, you scribes, woe to you. Because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourself will not lift one finger to help them. You load people down. The word here is fortune in Greek, and it was used primarily about loading, about loading boxes on ships. It was cargo. You're putting cargo on people. Here's another thing to carry, and another. Here's an ought. Here's a should. Here's a gotta do. And you just load people down, and you exhaust people. You don't do a thing to help them carry that. You just want to look good by having people who look holy by your standards and you give them all this stuff to carry. So the fourth truth of, of abusive leadership is this. Abusive leaders tend to care more about rules than people. You pile on the rules even though people are dying. They tend to control people with their rules and they tend to exhaust people. And those of you who have come out of uh, abusive leadership situations can probably testify that one of the main ways they control you is by shame, fear, and intimidation. By contrast, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my burden is light and my yoke is easy. Uh, Jesus gives rest to people. He empowers people. He cares more about people than he does about rules. He'll heal people on the Sabbath. He'll feed people on the Sabbath because and, 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 people come first. So the sign of healthy Christian leadership is that the leadership cares more about people than about rules. They, they empower people rather than exhaust people, and they never resort to shame and intimidation to get their way or to get people to behave the way they think people should behave. And then Jesus says, and now he's really getting warmed up. This, this, this uh, monologue just escalates in intensity. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, and it was your ancestors who, ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you built their tombs. Now what Jesus is basically saying here is this. It looks like you honor the prophets when you build these great tombs for them. You pretend to honor the prophets by building them these great tombs, but in fact your heart is on the side of those who killed the prophets. 
And so these tombs, rather than being a memorial to how you honor God, what they really are is a memorial to how you are in solidarity with the murderers and those who have opposed God. So truth number five about abusive leadership is this. Abusive leaders tend to pay homage to the truth, but their heart is actually hostile to it. In a Christian context, it may look like this. Uh, In abusive leadership, they'll use the language of good news because they have to, because it's in the Bible. But in abusive context, the good news has a way of becoming bad news, but they still call it good. It, It has a way of getting distorted and twisted into shaming news, into controlling news, into you got to, you should, you ought to, what's wrong with you kind of news. And in abusive context, you rarely hear and, and even more rarely experience anything that is truly good news, anything that truly liberates you, anything that truly empowers you, anything that truly sets you free, anything that truly gives you joy and peace is just absent in the abusive context. There's always an oppressive kind of a feeling when there's abuse going on. But they still call it good, which just screws people up because now you're calling something bad good and you get trained into doing that. See, Jesus, by contrast, he brought really good news. He knew, he he embodied good news. He brought freedom for the oppressed and and liberation to the poor. He really brought good news. And he offered it to all who were hungry for it. And so the key or a sign of healthy Christian leadership as opposed to abusive leadership is that the good news is really good. The way you can tell good news from bad news is that the good news is good. Ask, is it good? Is it setting people free? Ask the question, is it good? Is it setting people free? Is it liberating people? Is it really helping them to walk in their full dignity in Christ? Good news is really good. And now Jesus heads down the home stretch. You have to hear his voice quivering with anger as he says this. Because of this, Jesus says, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others uh, they will persecute, bringing judgment on them. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Jesus, the meek and mild. (laughs) These are the single harshest words Jesus ever spoke. He is in their face. Abel was the first person killed in the biblical narrative. Zechariah was the last person killed in the biblical narrative, at least as they, the way they organized their books in the first century. And so what Jesus is saying is that this, this generation incarnates uh, everything that's opposed God from the very beginning. And this, this generation, therefore, is going to pay for all the wrong that's been done from the beginning. And what most scholars believe he's referring to here is that judgment that's coming in 70 AD, when God is going to bring an end to the whole Old Testament system, that, that Jerusalem-centered, temple-centered, sacrifice-centered uh, way of doing religion, he brings an end to that. And now his, program's going to be a his kingdom program is going to be a non-nationalistic one. He, 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 there's continuity between the old and the new, but here's the discontinuity. He brings that to an end. And he does it by allowing the Romans, as I said before, to destroy the temple and banish the Jews from Jerusalem. And then there's one more woe that Jesus pronounces. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and now you're hindering those who were entering. You are supposed to bring light, but instead you're bringing darkness. You obscure the truth of the word by reading your own sickness and twisted theologies into it. The picture I get 
uh, of this sort of, of, of leadership when it comes to interpreting the Bible is this. When I was a kid, and some of you who are older maybe you know, will remember this, uh, we, we used to call them funny glasses. I don't know what they're actually called, but they, you could buy them in stores. And there were these glasses where they had distorted lenses. And so when you put them on, everybody looked fat and distorted, and, and, or some would make people look really, really skinny. And we just thought they were so funny. Probably destroyed our eyesight, but at the time they seemed funny. Well, see, what happens is, is that if you, come, if you have a person who, who brings to the Bible uh, either their own woundedness or their own sickness or maybe even their own evil agendas, they read the Bible through the lens of, those, of that wound and that sickness and those evil agendas. So they see the Bible and they can quote verses, just like we could see people with these funny glasses, but they're all out of shape. They're distorted. There's no sense of continuity with it. it, it it's just weird. It's twisted up. And so the sixth truth of abusive leadership is that they tend to obscure God's word because they read their sickness into the Bible or their evil agendas into the Bible. And this is why they come up with jaded, distorted theologies, jaded pictures of God, jaded pictures of human beings, the jaded understanding of salvation. And to get their agendas, they frequently will use the Bible, maybe their superior knowledge of the Bible, a certain kind of knowledge anyways. They don't see the real truth of it all, but they, they, they went to seminary perhaps, or their, their greater rhetorical skills or their leadership positions, and they use that to pound people into submission. The Bible becomes a weapon in situations that are abusive. And some of us have had the Bible used as a weapon against us. And what that does is it sometimes jades people's perception of the Bible. There's a number of people I'm betting in this auditorium who are listening through podcasts who have trouble reading the Bible on their own because you come out of an abusive context. You were systematically trained to see the Bible in the distorted way of your leaders. And the Bible simply isn't user-friendly. I've had people tell me that you know, when, when they hear the Bible interpreted uh, for them by somebody who, who, who does it with a sense of grace, it, it becomes a life-giving thing. But when they read it on their own, they have all these tapes and messages from their past, and, and the, the verses are called out, and, and there's, it just distorts the whole thing, and it becomes shaming, it becomes abusive, and, and whatnot. It takes sometimes years to get healed from being indoctrinated in an abusive context. By contrast, Jesus brought incredible clarity to the Bible. In fact, folks, Jesus was and is the clarity of the Bible. He says to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, you search the scriptures because you think in them you're going to find truth, but you're not really searching the scriptures because if you were, you'd see that Moses wrote about me. Jesus is the point of the whole thing. And Jesus presents himself as the point of the whole thing. And so healthy Christian, Christ-like leadership, as opposed to abusive leadership, reads the Bible not with the lenses of their own woundedness or sickness or any other kind of lens. You read the Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ. Because the whole thing is pointing towards him or pointing back to them, Old Testament and New Testament, and Jesus is the point of everything. And then Luke finishes up this passage by saying, When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. In fact, before long, we're going to see that they start to plot for his execution. And all the while, they're simply confirming that everything Jesus just said about them is true. They have the heart that kills God's prophets. Okay, that's the exegesis. Now I want to apply this by making three rather quick points. First point, 
The reason Jesus is so irate here, we never otherwise find Jesus talking like this. He never talks this way to, to your, your run-of-the-mill sinners. He never t- t- treats you know, the, 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 those who are judged by the religious system of his day. He never speaks this way to them. He always speaks words of mercy and kindness. But here, you've got a very different-looking Jesus. And the reason is because leadership is so important to what God is about in the world. It was in the Old Testament, and it is in the New Testament. Leadership is important to God's program, even in the New Testament. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. So Christ himself gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. God is relying on Christ-like leaders to build up the body. Note here that the, the job of the pastors and evangelists and the teachers and whatnot, the job isn't to do the ministry while the people support them. The job is for the leaders to equip the saints for the work of ministry. In other words, the way the leaders do ministry is by empowering others to do ministry. But you are the ministers of Woodland Hills Church. God relies on leaders to do that. If the leaders become corrupt, that doesn't get done, so the body of Christ isn't built up, and the kingdom is not going to be advanced. Uh, Leadership is crucial to what God is all about. Uh, It's foundational to the whole thing. Now, this is important for us to understand, because unless we see this, we might have a tendency, especially we in the West, especially we in America, to dismiss leadership. In fact, there's a lot of people in America who have this idea that they don't need to be under any leadership. Uh, It goes by the name of kind of autonomous American individualism. I'm my own person. I make my own decisions. I call my own shots. Nobody tells me what to do. Don't you get in my face. I ain't submitting to nobody know how. It's the American way, independence. Now, you add on to that that a lot of people have been in abusive contexts where leadership, they submitted to leadership and they were abused by it. Well, now they have got particular buzzers going off about leadership. And maybe even right now, they're starting to get nervous because I'm going to talk about leadership. But see, here's the thing. In the New Testament, from a New Testament perspective, you're either called to be a leader or you're called to be one who follows leaders. The idea of an autonomous individual out there just doing their own thing is simply not on the radar screen of the New Testament. All are called to submit. Even leaders are called to submit to other leaders and followers are called to to submit to to leaders. Those who are called by God, commissioned by God, are given a passion by God and and are confirmed in in the community of people to be leaders, uh, they're the ones who are set apart to lead in the body of Christ and others are called to follow. If you've got a person who says, I'm a leader and no one's following, no one's confirming it, well then, maybe you've got to go back to the drawing board and take our class on, 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 on your gifts to find out what you're called to do in the, in the ministry. But there are those who are called and set aside to be leaders in the body of Christ. And if you're called to do that, do that. And even there, you submit to other leaders. But all others are called to follow them. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. My favorite verse in the Bible. Just kidding. It says this. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. Everybody say submit. Submit. Oh, that hurt some of you. I know it did, but I'm sorry. I'm just preaching the word this morning, okay? Now, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority. 
because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. James says, be careful if you feel like you want to go into a, a leadership position like teaching because God's going to hold you to account. You, you're going to be judged more severely. So this isn't something you want to go into unless God's really calling you to do it. But he says, do this. Submit to their authority so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. See, your job is to make me happy. All right? That's all. That's all. <laughs> Just kidding. No, I, you do give me joy. I, you're not a burden. Uh, for that would be of no benefit to you. If pastor ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. That's what he's basically saying here. Okay, look at it. From a New Testament perspective, either you're called to lead or you're called to follow. And this is why the first aspect of the covenant at Wilton Hills Church, when you become a covenant partner, the first aspect of the covenant is, do you agree to submit to the leadership of Wilton Hills Church? Those who are given the, the, the vision uh, of where God wants to head this and, and are power to now equip the saints for the work of ministry to carry out that vision. Because if there's not submission to that, this thing just isn't going to work. Uh, if you have just a free-for-all thing, a conglomeration of people, everyone's doing their own thing, the vision just does not happen. Now, someone might say, well, what if I don't have confidence in the leadership of Wilderness well, Church or whatever church you might happen to be attending? Because the, the passage here says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to them. You're never called to submit to someone you don't have, have confidence to. If you don't think you should be submitted to them, then don't submit to them. But find, if you're not called to lead, you're called to follow, so you need to find some leadership that you are confident of. It's just not good for you to be hanging around when you're not confident of the leadership. The enemy will use you to bring division in the church. It's not good for your soul, and it's not good for the church to be hanging around under leadership that you're not confident of. There was a number of years ago, a, a lady who approached me, and we had had to make a tough decision here, and it involved some personnel, and she was no way happy about this, and she wanted to know the, the, what went on. You know, and and um, our policy is that those who need to know will know, and those who don't need to know don't know, and, and we, we err on the side of protecting people's privacy, if at all possible. Sometimes it's not possible, but, but uh, those who are affected by it and need to know, they know. Well, this lady wanted to know, and, and she had no business knowing. And, and so she was saying, I've lost confidence in, in the, the leadership here because I want to know. And they happened to be, she told me, a, a wealthy couple. Uh, and they happened, she told me, I wouldn't know this because I don't know the finances of anybody around here. Uh, but uh, she says, we give 10% of all of our income to the church. But we are going to withhold our tithe because we're no longer confident of the ministry of, of the leadership of Willing Hills Church. And I said, I'm sorry to hear that. I really am. But, um, and maybe this is a temporary bump you're going through. There's times when you've got to call in trust chips. There really are. It's like, you're going to have to trust us on this one. Uh, and she just didn't have those chips. And so I said, maybe, maybe you'll recover from this, but if you per persevere in this lack of confidence, and, and you don't trust us, I'm not judging you for that, but you, I want you to really pray about whether this is where you're called to be, because if you don't have confidence in the leadership here, I can guarantee you this isn't where you're called to be. And it's not good for you or good for the church for you to hang around here thinking that you're called to be here when you don't have, you're not following the leadership. And so I encourage you to check out a couple other churches. I gave her a couple of names that I thought they were really good, and they could use your finances and, and your following if you can get confidence in them. She says, you're telling me to go to another church? And I said, well, if you don't have confidence here, yes, for your sake and for our sake. And she was aghast. I mean, she was like, how dare you? I think she wanted me to fall on my knees with a quivering lip saying, don't take your money and run, please. We don't have very many wealthy people here. I don't know if we have any anymore. <laughs> I'll do what you say. Tell me what you want to know. 
Oh, really? Felt like, like, like you put the gun to my head? You trying to hold me hostage here or something? Uh, you know, no, 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 no. We, we, don't, uh, we don't negotiate with terrorists. I don't, no, I, I'm just not going to do that. It's like... Uh, there, there, are, there are moments uh, on low finances where I wonder about that policy, but uh, we'll... <laughs> No, okay, but the, the, the bottom line is this. It, it, you need to find, if you're not called to lead, you're called to follow, you need to find leadership that you're confident on, that you can trust. That doesn't mean you're going to agree with everything. You never agree with everything, but you know their heart is there. You agree with the vision. You agree with the direction they're taking uh, this congregation, and you get behind it, and you support it. And if you don't support it, if, if you're not behind it, I told this lady, if you're not behind it enough to give sacrificially to it, well, then you're probably not behind it enough to be healthy hanging around here. So find some place that you can give sacrificially to, because there's a lot of ministries out there that could use your, your money. Now, I understand that a lot of people, even as I'm talking right now, might have a lot of buzzers going off because you've been in context where there was abuse. And now leadership is a bad word and submission is a bad word and all your buzzers are going off. So I want us to understand how this happens. Very quickly, this is my second point. How does it happen that abuse uh, occurs in Christian uh, ministry? People ask the question all the time, how could this happen? If, if, if the church is the one true church, how could there be these you know, evil people in there and wounded people and, and people making all these kind of mistakes? Well, let, let, me, let me make three really quick points. Number one, wounded and needy people often are drawn to ministry. They're not called to ministry. They might once they get healthy, but they're drawn to it even when they're not healthy. And the reason's obvious. Look, if you're wounded and you're needy and your ego needs buttressing and, and you just need attention and affection and feel some kind of worth, what better place to go than the ministry? Because if you got the right gift mix, you can you go into context where they're going to be looking up to you, putting you on a pedestal, calling you reverend. Man, aren't you great? You're the hero of God, the man and the woman of the hour. And you get accolades all the time and pats on the back all the time. This is, of course, this is the kind of thing that a needy, wounded pe- a person would gravitate to. And when they get in those positions, it's almost always at least a little bit dysfunctional and sometimes positively abusive and disastrous. Because wounded people tend to wound people, especially when they're in positions of leadership. If you're going into the ministry out of your own neediness because you need to feel important, you need to get some kind of worth that invariably you will not be building the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you're building your own kingdom. You're not building the church of Jesus Christ, you're building your own church. Because you're trying to get worth, you're trying to get accolades, you're trying to get your needs met. And what happens is that instead of feeding the sheep, which is what you're called to do, you start to feed off of the sheep. And you're always living the question, how am I doing, how am I doing? And trying to do things to make it look good, make you look good, and people carrying out your own agendas. And when they don't, then you get angry and use intimidation and fear and, and whatnot to try to get your way. The single most important foundational fundamental qualification of any leader in the kingdom of God is that you have to know how to get all of your worth and all of your identity and all of your life from Jesus Christ and from Jesus Christ alone. Because you're not getting it from Jesus Christ, you're going to start to try to get it from your ministry. And now you start feeding off of the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. Secondly, it's not just wounded people who tend to gravitate towards the ministry, but yes, evil people tend to gravitate towards the ministry. And there's a fine line between a profoundly sick person and an evil person. Was Jim Jones you know, profoundly sick or was he evil? Uh, this, this, this Warren Jeffs guy, that Mormon fundamentalist, is he just profoundly sick or is he evil? I don't need to parse that out right now, but the distinction is this. I'm talking about people who go into the ministry with the intention of hurting. Wounded and needy people go into the ministry with the best of motives. It's just that if you're wounded and needy, you're going to be trampling over people. 
But these are folks who go into the ministry with the intention of doing harm, and there are some who do that. And the reason isn't hard to figure out. If you have got the kind of sick and twisted and evil heart where you just get off on controlling people, what better place to do it than in the church? If you just get off on, 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 on uh, you know, ripping off gullible people and making yourself rich, what better place to do it than the church? There's a lot of churches that will see that as a blessing from God. And if you just get off using people even for your own sexual purposes, what better place to do it than the church? where in some context, people are just going to give you a blank check of trust, and now you tell them what you want to tell them, and they're going to believe it's from God. There are a lot of people who just are gullible like that. And so, of course, evil people tend to be drawn into the ministry. And on top of that all, and here's my third point, Satan is out there orchestrating wounded and evil people to get into the ministry. There's a principality and power that we're up against here. And that shouldn't surprise us. Look, if you're a roaring lion, like the Bible says Satan is, and you're seeking whom you may devour, and you want to eat sheep... What better way to do it than to become their shepherd? You, you, and if, if you want to destroy the credibility of Christianity, what better way than to get people who are vulnerable to your influence because they're wounded and needy and, and have evil in their hearts, what better way to, than to get your little pawns into positions of authority and then blow them sky high so the world can see what hypocrites Christians are? So there's a power out there orchestrating it. We should not be surprised when you hear about all sorts of scandals happening in the church, happening among pastors and whatnot. Of course that's going to happen because we're in warfare, folks. And wounded and needy and evil people gravitate towards that ministry. Which is my third point here, and that is this. When wounded and evil people get in ministry, they can be used by the enemy to do tremendous harm. And this is why Jesus is so passionate in confronting these leaders. He's got to confront them because so much hangs on this. Now, what do we do when we confront abusive leadership? I'll say two things about it. The first thing is simply this. If you're in a position to do something, then do something. I mean, if, you're, if you are the Pope, probably, you're probably not, but if you are the Pope, then you confront the abuse going on with the priesthood. Or if you have a denominational position where pastors are under you and you find out that, that one or more is, is being abusive, then you've got to intervene. And if there's one thing that church authorities have learned in the last 20 years is, is this. You've got to intervene sooner than later, and you can't be worried about your reputation at that point. You've got to call the shots as you are. You pull back the cover, let all the stench out, put it on the table, because trying to cover it over for the sake of appearance does nothing but propagate the abusive system. You confront it, and you confront it hard. But if you're not in a position to do that, what do you do? Well, if you have any access to the powers that be in your denomination or fellowship or church to confront abusive authority, well, then use that if you have any access. But the main thing I would want to say to you is this. If you're convinced that a ministry is abusive, then get out. Just get out. Your first responsibility is to be a healthy kingdom person. And if you can grab someone's hand on the way out, then grab someone's hand on the way out. But a whole lot hangs on this. If you find yourself under leadership, that they, they major in the minors and they minor in the majors, uh, if you find yourself in, in, in a position where the, the leadership is more concerned with behavior than the heart, I encourage you to seriously pray about getting out from under that, that ministry. If you're in a ministry where they demand an inordinate respect for their position and they demand compliance on, on every detail, if you're in a ministry that's wounding people rather than making them healthier, I encourage you to get out. If you're in a ministry where there, there's control going on and, and, and they care more about rules than people and people are getting exhausted because of all the oughts and the shoulds and the gotta do's that the leadership is piling on people, then get out from under that ministry. If you're in a context where you don't hear and don't experience, the good news is good. 
You're not experiencing the liberation and the joy and, 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 and the truth and the beauty of Jesus Christ. Seriously pray about getting out from under that ministry. And if you're in a context where the Bible is ever used as a weapon against you, to control you, to shame you, or to intimidate you, get out from under there. If you're in a ministry where the truth is obscured and the beauty of Jesus Christ is not put on full display, seriously pray about getting out from under that ministry fast because God needs you to be a healthy follower in the kingdom of God and go looking for a ministry, a a healthy Christ-like balanced ministry that you can trust. And I'll end by saying this. Once you're out, what do you do? And here's what you do. First order of business is to start to get healthy. Ask God to heal you. If you've been in an abusive relation or abusive, uh, under abusive authority and leadership in the past, ask God to heal you. And, and maybe God will use a counselor to do it, but get whatever you need to get healthy again. Because if you don't, you're going to live the rest of your life suspicious of leadership. And if you're suspicious of leadership all the time, you can't ever be the good, healthy follower that God is calling you to be. So get healthy, whatever you have to do. And secondly, and this is part of getting healthy, forgive. Forgive. However bad it was, and I have heard horror stories of people who are now coming to Woodland Hills Church, uh, of stuff that has gone on in the past, just horror stories. On a human level, it may be so understandable that you're full of anger and bitterness and and, and, and whatnot on a human level, but in the kingdom of God, I challenge you to forgive. To forgive. Forgiveness is not saying that what happened to you wasn't majorly wrong. Forgiveness is not saying you now have warm fuzzies about that previous ministry. Forgiveness is not saying that you're supposed to trust that, that previous ministry. And forgiveness is not saying that, that, that you still shouldn't do things to protect others from that ministry. What forgiveness is simply saying is release it. Let it go. Let it go. Forgiveness is simply saying, I no longer hold this debt that you owe me because of what you did. I no longer hold you to that. I turn it over to God. And God will take care of whatever judgment needs to happen. Your job is to forgive. Let it go. If you don't do that, then that abuse of authority is still in your head and heart, and they still exercise authority over you. You are giving them permission to that degree to define you. And that will sabotage your trust in every subsequent leadership so you won't be the good follower that God is calling you to be. Forgive. Let it go. Let it go. Would you close your eyes for a moment and I want to ask the worship team to come back up here. And I just want to ask the Holy Spirit to right now apply individually this message in the way that we need it applied. Holy Spirit, reveal to us, it may be that you're here and you just now realize that maybe a previous ministry you were in was abusive. You never identified it as that before. And all of a sudden, you understand why you've been so paranoid about leadership since then. Will you ask God to heal you and forgive that previous ministry? Others here need to ask God for healing. Some need to ask for power to forgive. Some here who are listening, either in the auditorium or by podcast, maybe all of a sudden it occurs to you that you need to make a phone call because there's a loved one or person you care about who's in a very abusive situation and God wants to use you to help them get out from under that. I don't know. Holy Spirit, apply this message. Just apply it. Apply it. 
And Lord, we pray, God, that you'll continue to form Wilton Hills Church as a coherent, beauty-manifesting kingdom movement where there's a unity between leadership and followers, where there's a confidence. Guard, Lord, we pray the leadership of Wilton Hills Church to always walk with integrity, manifesting Christ's character, never getting our own needs met by the sheep. Lord God, continue to solidify the followership, the beauty of Christ-like followership in the body of Christ, that we may together carry out the vision that you've given us to do. And now, Lord, we're going to continue to worship you because you are our Lord and you are our King. We do it, Lord, by start, starting by taking up an offering, acknowledging, God, that everything we have comes from you, and we just ask you, Lord, to direct us on how you would have us steward your money, how much to enjoy on our own and how much to sacrifice for the poor and for the work of ministry. Lead us on that, and we commit to being obedient. And Lord, then as we continue to worship you in song, Holy Spirit, flood this place, pack this place out, draw our hearts to you to shut out everything else, to be solely focused on you, because right here and right now, you are all that matters. And be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. is a higher throne than all this world is known wherever once from every tongue will one day come Hallelujah! Come on, sing it again, sing! I was created Hallelujah! Hallelujah! Yes! Yes! Glory! Hallelujah! Amen. 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 Make his praise glorious when you sing. Make his praise glorious just in how you live when you leave this place. Live the praise of God. Make his praise glorious by how you love your enemies. Make your praise glorious, his praise of him glorious by how you treat your neighbors, your kids, your spouse, your employer, your employees. Just show forth the praise of God. Could I ask the uh, prayer team to come forward here? And uh, if you have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, it could be about the issue that we talked about today. It could be about some other issue. I encourage you to spend a little time praying with these folks. This is what they're here for. Um, or if you just want to come forward and kneel at the altar and pray on your own, I encourage you to do that. Or if uh, you are here this morning and you haven't surrendered your life to Christ, you need to come up here and talk to these folks and they'd love to lead you uh, in, in uh, getting started in the kingdom walk. Stop by the, the ministry table and sign up to be part of the prayer team that's going on around here. Uh, it's a great service and it's actually very easy to do. A few minutes early, a few minutes later, and uh, be part of that prayer team ministry. I'll close with this prayer. Father... As we leave, leave here, we pray, God, that you would, in fact, use us to make your praise glorious. We want to live as a living sacrifice to you, God, and may your character and your being be displayed in everything we do from morning to night, Lord God. Help us to walk as yielded people uh, who allow you, through the power of your spirit, to minister to others, Lord God. May the Holy Spirit be on us as a fragrance 
for the world to smell the love and beauty of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Spend some time getting together out in the gathering area.